Thanks, band, and thank you, Bonnie Kay, for reading that. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. We want to welcome you again to Hiawatha Church. Uh, it's great to have you here. I, I'm one of the pastors, like I said. Our other pastor, uh, Chris, who usually preaches, he is on spring break this week. And so they were in uh, sunny Florida. My wife and I and our family were also on spring break this past week, and we were in Indiana. You guys ever been to Indiana before? It's pretty, it's not quite Hawaii or uh, Florida, but it was, it was really great. My wife and I went to this conference. The Gospel Coalition has a national conference. It was in, in Indianapolis this year, and we actually had a really great time. One of my favorite parts about this conference, a lot of stuff was really great about it, but one of my favorite parts is we literally got to worship with like 10,000 people from across the world. And so even though it's a national conference, there's people from all over the world. And so we got to literally like five, six times sit next to and worship alongside people from all over the world, people from India, China, all over Latin America and Africa, uh, people from Korea, and much more. And it was just a really beautiful, powerful time to get to see the global church worship to get, worship our God together. So even though it was really great, though, we still really missed our church family. It's hard being away for even a week, and it was, uh, it's been really great to be here and worship with Hiawatha Church this morning, even, even though uh, the conference was really great. And as I was worshiping uh, with, with people from all across the world and thinking about our passage today, Acts 10, I was thinking about what we experienced, what my wife and I experienced. Here's a picture of it here. So there's literally like 10,000 people at the top of the bleachers there. Each of those little specks is a person. Uh, but what I was kind of realizing is what, what I was experiencing at that time, and uh, even this, what we uh, experienced on a Sunday morning uh, in, in some regards as well, was not possible in the Old Testament. Through, through the law, only certain people could fully and truly worship God. Not only that, but those outside of the Jewish community, which my wife and I are not ethnically Jews, so even those outside of the Jewish community, they weren't allowed to worship or befriend or uh, even eat with people who weren't Jewish, even if those people have converted to Judaism. So if you are like myself this morning, you're, you're non-ethnically Jewish today, you're, you're a Gentile, uh, if your ancestry or ethnicity isn't Jewish, then under the law, we couldn't worship God with his people. Even if they were fully converted, there were still these barriers and walls between us worshiping alongside God's people, which might sound like a big bummer, like a big uh, downer to start a sermon. But we're going to see, though, uh, in Acts 10, is that God not only had a plan for that separation throughout history, like he intended it and it happened because of a plan, but... He also sacrificially and intentionally moved into human history to break down these separating walls and barriers. So what my wife and I experienced at the Gospel Coalition here is God's glorious plan. What we here at Hiawatha Church experience every Sunday morning as a gathered group of non-Jewish people, Gentiles, most of us, whose, whose ethnicities and heritages are from across the globe, what we experience on a Sunday morning, that's a good thing. And God sovereignly desires for us to experience that when we gather, as well as churches around the world. This morning we are in a sermon series in the book of Acts. So if you're new to the Bible or new to Hiawatha, Acts is a book that comes right after the four books that tell about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so Acts is kind of like a part two to the gospel of Luke. Um, and so far, what we've seen is, so at the very beginning, Jesus is, is resurrected, is about to be ascended back to heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father, and he sends his disciples, the 12 disciples now become apostles, which means sent ones. He sends those apostles into the world in order to spread the gospel. And so we're, we're entitling our series, The Church is Born. So the church is born here, and it spreads like wild wild fire across the known world. And so what we're seeing here, or across the, the ancient and Roman world, what we're seeing here is at the very beginning of Acts, Acts 1-8, Jesus uh, speaks to his, especially the 12 disciples who are now apostles, but all Christians. Uh, there, there's more Christians there than just the 12. But he says to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of 
of the earth. So in this graphic here, we just kind of see the gospel started in Jerusalem, the center of, of Israel, of the Jewish people, and then it begins to, to spread out and go farther and farther. And throughout the rest of the book of Acts, we're going to see it literally go to the ends of the earth. So when we're seeing that the gospel is, is now not just crossing geographical or national borders, which, which it has at first when it goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, but it's now also crossing ethnic and racial borders. So two big things we're going to look at today uh, in Acts 10. First is we're going to look at this vision. What's going on? What does it mean? Why is that important to us? And then secondly, we're going to see Jesus as king. Like, like Peter just talked about before that song, Jesus is king. Whether we like it or not, he is reigning in heaven on high, and he is our king. So we're going to look at those two things today. But before we can even jump into that vision, there's a bit of background that we need to understand, which as Vani K was reading the passage, you were maybe thinking, what is going on? This is strange, crazy, weird stuff. I have no idea what's going on. Thankfully, Peter actually does interpret the vision, so that's helpful. But there's a lot going on. So we're going to set the stage and then look at the vision. So today's sermon is going to be entitled, God Shows No Favoritism. Or in our passage today, it used the word partiality. God showing no partiality. And we're going to see that as the gospel spreads across uh, geographical and national borders, as well as ethnic and uh, racial borders as well. So we start by meeting this guy named Cornelius. Verse 1 starts off by saying there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously, so he gave money to the poor and people in need, and he prayed continually to God. So a centurion was a Roman soldier, a Roman captain that was in charge and oversaw a hundred soldiers. So this guy is powerful, this guy has influence, this guy is obviously uh, Roman, and he is a soldier. And he is what we, we call a God-fearer. So he wasn't a, a full convert to, Ju- to uh, Judaism. He had not uh, been circumcised. He wasn't regularly worshiping at the temple. He was not observing dietary uh, laws and restrictions. Yet he still was, uh, in some ways, worshiping the true God. He prayed to God. He uh, had generosity towards others. So he, what, what would, he's what we would call a God-fearer. Someone who's definitely religious, Right? Definitely religious, yet at the same time, he's still separated from God. There's still a wall and barrier there. He's actually still kind of far from God, even though in some ways he is kind of close. He's far from God because he's not a full convert. Right? He, uh, at this point, he does not have the Holy Spirit. He has not heard the gospel. He has not responded in belief yet. So theologically, we know he's not a Christian. But even just in reality, or just outside of uh, theology, we see that he does not live in Jerusalem. He's not regularly worshiping at the temple. He hasn't been circumcised. He is not following all the Jewish uh, Old Testament laws. So religious, kind of close to God, kind of gets it, but still far off and in need of, very excited about this guy who's sent by God that's going to tell him the gospel. So this guy, Peter. So Peter's one of the apostles, so one of Jesus' 12 disciples. That's now one of the sent ones into the world. Uh, he's actually the main pastor of the church, and uh, so a pretty, pretty important guy. And uh, Peter is beginning to grasp that God is doing something new. So if you're here last week, Jesse Splann, one of our elders, preached on the passage previous to this, and yet at the end of uh, that passage, in the beginning of ours, we see it again too, that Peter is staying with the guy, Simon the Tanner in the city named Joppa. So this guy named Simon, who's a tanner, doesn't mean he likes to, to sunbathe a lot. It means he works with animal skins. He tans them. He turns them into clothes. And so if you know the Old Testament law, you couldn't touch dead bodies, including dead skin. And so, but Peter's staying with him. So Peter's becoming ceremonially unclean. Peter's kind of breaking the law. And so we see that Peter's beginning to see that, hey, God's doing something new through the gospel. The, the Old Testament, the law is going away as well as we've just seen as readers the gospel spreading not uh just not just jewish people are believing the gospel but it's spreading now to ethiopians and to samaritans and now today to romans as well but before we can unpack this vision there is some very strange stuff going on with with this dream with this trance 
with this vision that we need to unpack so at least we begin to kind of understand what is going on. And that is these Old Testament purity laws, especially around what food is pure and what food's not, what food is okay to eat as a Jewish person and what food is not okay to eat. So in the Old Testament, uh, what we need to understand is symbolically, uncleanliness is associated with things like death, sin, and separation from God. So it's, it's symbols, okay? So clean food's not good, and unclean food is not evil. It's not sin and, and not sin. It's kind of in a different category. It's, it's symbolic. Stuff's clean or unclean. And things that are unclean uh, point to or are associated with things like death, sin, and separation from God. So here in our vision, we're specifically talking about and looking at what was allowed and not allowed to be eaten as a Jewish person. So a clean animal was one that was permitted to be eaten. An unclean animal was one that was forbidden for being, from being eaten. And so, uh, just to be clear, this is not saying clean animals are good, unclean animals are evil, but rather they're symbolic of something. And we're going to hit on that in just a second. So here's just a, a, a visual picture of that. So clean animals on the left, so things like chickens and locusts, you can eat them, they probably taste gross, but you could. Uh, Things like deer and cows and then uh, fish that have scales were allowed to be eaten. Then on the right, things that were not allowed, things that were impure or unclean, would be animals like um, pigs or like shellfish or lobsters. So kind of a bummer if you lived in that time. No, no bacon, no shrimp, but um, that's just how it went. Uh, so if you haven't gotten this yet, and you probably have if you've read the Bible much or if you've been around Hiawatha, a bit, but God loves to use symbolism. He uses it all the time. So to begin to understand the why, why is this set up? Why is this a law for the Old Testament, for, for Israel in the Old Testament? We need to understand, first of all, God loves symbolism. He uses symbols and symbolism to teach truths, to, to remind people of truth and reality and him. So uh, as we begin to understand what's going on in this vision, we're going to go back to uh, Leviticus. So in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, two different chapters in the Old Testament, just a big list saying you can eat these animals, they are clean. You cannot eat that, these animals, they are unclean. Okay, so that's like uh, where we get this from, where the Jewish people got this from. And then in Leviticus 20, he begins to help us understand the why behind it. Why is God even setting this up around foods? And this is a good summary of that. In Leviticus 20, God says to his people, but I have said to you, God has said to Israel, the nation of Israel, uh, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, you shall inherit their land and I will give it to you uh, to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. So God says, I'm going to save you. You're going to be my people and I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to kick out people who are uh, squatting on this land that I own. I'm going to kick them out. I'm going to give you a land and it's going to be flowing with milk and honey meaning that it's going to be prosperous and it's going to be great. And so God says, I'm going to do this. And then he continues, I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean. So God's saying, just like I separated you from all the other nations, the evil nations, okay, therefore you shall separate your food. So every time you eat food, you realize that you are supposed to be a distinct people group you're supposed to be holy which doesn't it doesn't mean righteous but it also means set apart and and different verse 26 you shall be holy to me for i the lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine so that's a good summary of why god is using symbolism through clean and unclean uh foods but there's more to it let we're, we're going to continue so the esv study bible helps us uh, again, by summarizing, helps us kind of see what's going on here in Acts 10. And they start off by saying, well, the rationale of the classification is debated. So, so people don't know why uh, the food on the left is okay and the food on the right is not. Why, why does God say, you're pure food and you're impure food? We, uh, people disagree on exactly why that is. Does it have to do with carnivores versus uh, omnivores or herbivores? Does it have to do with... Um, what the other nations were worshiping as false gods? Does it have to do with uh, a bunch of different things? That, that, that's debated. But even though that part is debated, 
The purpose of these purity laws is clear. In brief, they were to help Israel as the Lord's holy people to make distinctions between ritual cleanliness and ritual uncleanliness. Just as he separated the Israelites from the other nations, so they must separate clean from unclean food. This is why the restrictions can be removed then in Acts 10, when Jew versus Gentile distinction is no longer relevant in defining the people of God. So in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the people of God were set apart and distinct. They were different than the Gentiles. Whereas in the New Covenant, it's no longer based on who's ethnically Jewish and who's a Gentile, but rather the people of God are those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. So I know, still kind of confusing. You're probably still scratching your head a little bit. Or maybe you're thinking, okay, I get this, but your sermon is entitled, God Does Not Show Favoritism. And this all you've been saying kind of sounds like God picked a particular people group when you're showing them partiality or favoritism. So to help us kind of summarize, again, we're doing lots of summarizing here, and you get a bi- uh, 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 hopefully you have uh, a big chance later this week to talk about this with your friends, family, community groups, and begin to unpack even more of this and read more about it. But to help us get to being able to understand what's going on in Acts 10, this will help. So essentially, in the Old Testament, God's people were supposed to be set apart. They're supposed to be different. They're supposed to be distinct from the surrounding pagan, idol-worshiping uh, nations. They were supposed to be a holy nation, which means righteous and, and set apart, different, and a kingdom of priests. Essentially, in the Old Testament, Israel was saying to the world, come and see. Come and look at who Yahweh is. Come check out who our God is via us uh, via the way that Israel was supposed to be relating to each other and, and worshiping God and, and, and interacting with each other. So this is why it was important that Israel was unique and distinct and set apart and different. Okay? But now in the New Testament, as you're probably realizing as I'm talking about the Old Testament, in the New Testament, what does Jesus say? We just read this at the beginning of, of Acts 1.8. In the New Testament, after Jesus rises from the grave, he tells his people, now go and tell. No longer does the world have to come into a church building like this in order to hear the gospel. They will. But our call as Christians is to go and tell. So that helps us begin to see the distinction between what's going on in the Old Testament and why it looks like he's showing some favoritism, but what the point of that was. And we will uh, continue to unpack this in just a little bit. But hopefully that begins to help us understand what's going on. So Peter, thankfully, he, he tells us, the reader, uh, he helps us understand and interpret what this vision is about. It's about God welcoming Gentiles, welcoming non-Jews fully into the faith, and he's doing so in a new way. No longer do Gentiles become the people of God via the law, via circumcision and, and animal sacrifice and, and going to the temple and doing uh, ritual and, and purification uh, uh, different, different types of things. So Peter interprets the vision for us. In verse 28, he says, And Peter said to them, You yourself know how unlawful it is for me, a Jew, to associate with you or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. So again, this should be great news for us. If you're not ethnically Jewish, that that declaration here is that the gospel is now fully for us as Gentiles. We don't have to get circumcised. We don't have to follow the ten laws perfectly. We don't have to convert to a different religion, Judaism, to get in to Christianity. But now God is doing something, something new. And since it is new, since this is not the way that people came to God under the law, or not the way that non-Gentiles worshipped God, since God's doing something new, God's very careful at showing again and again and again that this is from him, right? So Peter gets the vision three times. It's, it's very supernatural and, and, and direct on how it happens. Cornelius gets the vision as well. Their visions line up. Uh, we see that there's um, later on in Acts, we're going to see this vision repeated, I think, two or three more times already. So it just shows us that even though it's something new, it's definitely something from God. God is making unclean people clean now in a unique, in a unique way through, through his son. 
And not only that, but the first half of this chapter, if you just kind of highlight supernatural or like God-type language, we see uh, a dozen references to the fact that God himself is doing this. It's not Cornelius' idea thinking, hey, how can I get in better with, with Yahweh? Maybe if I kind of make up this new way of relating to him. It's not Peter being uh, confused or, or, or cheated or something, but rather it is God behind it. God is making things clean. And in verse 15, we read, uh, what God has made clean, do not call common. If he's making something clean, it is clean. And even though this idea is new to Peter and Cornelius, this idea of God making things clean, you're probably thinking, hey, this sounds a lot like Jesus, right? It sounds a lot like Jesus and his ministry and what he did. Kind of breaking the way of, of how the old system worked and now making unclean impure, spiritually defiled people clean in a way apart from the temple, in a way apart from the law. Peter Carlson, not this Peter, getting the vision, but uh, one of our overseers, Peter Carlson, uh, preached on this idea uh, about a year and a half ago and reminded us in the Old Testament, it wasn't just eating unclean things that made you unclean, which we're talking mostly about eating, but even touching something that was impure, unclean, made the person unclean. So if you touch a dead body, you're unclean for a while. You have to do something to get ceremonially clean again or wait a certain period or something like that. But when Jesus shows up, God incarnate, God in flesh, he makes impure things clean just by touching them. The opposite. He touches lepers, defile, defiled people, and those who are ceremonial impure. And Jesus doesn't become ceremonial impure or unclean, but rather the people become clean. Peter Carlson said, when Jesus touches dirty things, they become clean, not the other way around. Jesus did this throughout his earthly ministry, and now through the gospel, through his atoning death and victorious resurrection, King Jesus is doing this on a cosmic level. Not just for a few people in his earthly ministry, but now for the entire world and for all time. Just like God is declaring all things clean and removing the need for ceremonial purity rituals, God is now fully welcoming Gentiles into the faith. So Peter says, in verse 34, he opens his mouth and says, Truly, I now understand, I now get it, that God shows no partiality. God no longer shows favoritism. And this, again, is where understanding God's purpose for Israel being set apart and different, why that is important, why that helps us. God's separation of Israel from the other nations wasn't because he was showing partiality towards them, as if they were great and special and everyone else outside of Israel sucked. It's actually not true at all. But remember, his separation of Israel, the reason he seemed to kind of show like he had a favorite, was so that they would be set apart, different, holy, distinct from the other nations, which would show the world who God was. So throughout the Old Testament, Israel is given these names. And uh, Isaiah 45 uh, reminds us that Israel is supposed to be a light for the nations. So all the surrounding nations are, are supposed to look to Israel and see, oh, that's who the one true God is. That's how we're supposed to live. That's how we're supposed to interact with each other and with him and be drawn towards this light. In Exodus 19, God tells Israel that they're supposed to be a holy nation, a whole people group, a whole ethnicity, a whole family that is set apart and distinct and righteous. And in that same verse, he also calls Israel a kingdom of priests. So the whole nation was supposed to be like a priest in that they were mediators between God and humanity. So if the watching world wanted to know who God was like, they should look to this nation, this kingdom of priests. In their course called Bible and Missional Perspective, Porterbrook writes about this and helps unpack this, this idea for us. God calls Israel to be a kingdom of priests. Priests in the Old Testament represented God to the people by teaching the law, 
and representing the people to God through sacrifice and intercession, which brought atonement for sin. Now Israel was to be a kingdom of priests. They had the privilege of making God known to the nations. They had the privilege of saying to the world, come and see who the only true God really is. They were also called to be a holy nation. They are set apart by God. Remember, set apart and holy mean, uh, mean the same thing. They are set apart by God to reflect his character to the nations. In obedience to God's word, Israel was called to live a life of visible holiness that was to draw the nations to life under God's rules. They were to live an attractive life, marked out by God's good law. They would be a people who were honest, true, generous, just, compassionate, merciful, loving, joyful, even playful people displaying God's rule of freedom to the world. By doing so, the nations would see the character of God in the world. God always loved the whole world. And it was his plan to rescue the world through Jesus, and that would ultimately come through Israel. So in our passage, we see Peter here say, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. God shows no favoritism. His love, his favor, his salvation was always for all the nations, all the tongues, all the ethnicities, all the tribes. We see that from the very beginning of the Bible to the end. So at the very beginning of the Bible, when God picks a guy named Abraham, this random schmuck, and he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. When he covenants with Abram, and that later becomes the nation of Israel and the Jewish people, this is what God says when he, when he covenants with them. He says, I will bless you, Abram. Those, or, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will, cur- I will curse. And in you, all the families of earth shall be blessed. And then later on, when God reiterates this covenant, this promise to Abraham and his descendants, in Genesis 26, he's, God says again, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give your offspring all these lands. So I'm going to make you into a great nation and I'm going to give you a land. I promise that, God says to Abraham and his descendants. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So God's love was always for all the nations, all the tongues, all the tribes, all the ethnicities. He loves them deeply. God does not show favoritism. He does not show partiality. And at the very end of the Bible, when we see a vision of what the very end is going to look like, when Jesus uh, returns and sin and death are completely destroyed, we read in uh, Revelation 7, after this I looked, so John having a vision of, of, of the end of time, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. We'll get back to that white robes thing in a bit. With palm branches in their hands and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God does not show favoritism. From the beginning to the end, he's always loved all. And his plan, when, even when he picked Israel, was to bless everyone through them and ultimately through the, the ultimate offspring. Galatians talks about Uh, Jesus Christ. And God makes it undeniably clear that he is behind this. This vision, this change, this new way that Gentiles are fully welcomed into the faith. So this isn't just Peter being fooled by Cornelius or just Peter being soft on God's laws, but rather God is behind this, this change, this new way that Gentiles are welcomed to God. God sends his Holy Spirit to fill these Gentile believers, proving that he is behind it, proving that he's welcoming these Romans, these non-Jewish people, giving them the same Holy Spirit, the same speaking in tongues miraculously, the same baptism. And the believers, when they see that, they acknowledge that is what is going on. Verse 44, when uh, Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. I think this is great. Peter's not even done like finishing his sermon and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit just shows up and starts saving these people miraculously. And the believers, uh, verse 45, 
from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, so other Christians who had come with Peter, Jewish Christians, they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Great news, great news. One thing I want us to pick up, a little bit of an aside here, but I think it's important that we see is that salvation, the Holy Spirit, baptism, comes fully to the Gentiles via a human being speaking, preaching, teaching the gospel. Not through visions. Which is kind of crazy to think. Salvation comes through the preaching and the teaching of the gospel. That's the way God wants to work. That's the way God chooses to work. Which seems just kind of strange to us, right? Like, we're imperfect. We're not great communicators great communicators, as I stumble on my words here. Um, God could have written in the sky, right? He could have written the gospel in the sky with flashing neon clouds, right? It made it very clear. He could have used other supernatural means. He could have used visions, right? He could have used angels, perfect messengers. But we see in our story today, these Romans don't get converted via angels speaking to them via supernatural visions. God chooses to bring them together through that, but the way that they're saved is through hearing the gospel from a human being. What a huge motivation and honor for us then as Christians that the way that God wants to rescue the world is through our words. Not that it's on our shoulders and if we screw up, they're they're damned. That's not the case. that's, That's not the point. The point is he could do it a million different ways, but he chooses to use us in big and small ways to preach the gospel and share the gospel and embody the gospel through our deeds, whether it's in our families, our friend groups, our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, on our sports teams. Let this lead us to see the huge eternal importance of sharing the gospel, missional living, evangelism, and all different kinds of ways that we share the gospel individually and as a church. God can. He can. And he, he, he maybe still does in some ways uh, convert people via supernatural means. That's not human beings speaking the gospel. But all throughout Acts, we see that's the way that he does it. So let that be an encouragement to us to, to continue to share the gospel and be honored and excited and have motivation for doing it. All right, so back to our story. So Peter is brought to Cornelius, and Cornelius gathers all of his loved ones. They're sitting there anxiously awaiting for what Peter has to say. And Peter delivers a sermon to the many gathered Romans. And as we've begun to see in Acts, and we'll, get, we'll get, continue to see throughout the next 18 chapters of Acts, we're in Acts 10, there's 18 more chapters, we will see that the gospel is a multifaceted diamond. We talk about this a lot. The good news of Jesus Christ's death in our place and his victorious resurrection over sin and death and now his ascension to reign as king in heaven, that is the gospel. And the gospel is like this multifaceted diamond. It's so deep. There's so many different facets and implications and, and truths about it. And since it is this multifaceted diamond, what we're going to see in the nearly 20 different sermons in the book of Acts, they're not all the same as if the gospel was just purely three points and that's it, nothing more. But rather, the central truth of the gospel, which I just said, Jesus' death and resurrection, is in all of them. But then a different facet is shown to the different people group or the different circumstance based on what they need. Each sermon hits on a different facet of the gospel depending on who's preaching, the setting on the sermon, what the people need, and who is listening. So we see sermons to religious rulers, to Gentiles, to Jews, to Samaritans, to fellow Christians, to pagans, to Greeks, to kings, and to Roman centurions. So Peter knows who he's preaching to. He knows he's preaching to Roman citizens and a few Jewish Christians that have come with him. And these Roman citizens kind of know about God. They're God-fearers, but they're not true believers. They haven't even converted fully to Judaism. And because of the circumstance and the people that he's preaching to, Peter puts some of his focus on one unique facet of the gospel. Jesus as Lord and King. 
which if you're a Christian here today, or even if you're not, you probably kind of understand Christians think Jesus is Lord, right? That's like a phrase people say. And uh, I know he kind of wore a crown, so of course he's a king. But let's look at this unique facet of the gospel that uh, Peter uses to speak to this group of Gentile Roman people. He starts out by saying, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. So Jesus is greater than Caesar. This crown of thorns is greater than that crown of leaves that Caesar would wear. As a centurion and his family, as Romans, they would put all their hope and their allegiance to Rome and Caesar. They would even worship Caesar as a god. All their pride would be in, I'm a Roman citizen, and Caesar is my Lord. And Peter starts off this sermon to them with this facet of the gospel. Jesus is greater than Caesar. Jesus is greater than Caesar. And now he unpacks this. Peter begins his sermon by preaching that part of the good news is that peace is now possible. And if you're a Roman citizen, you're thinking of uh, Pax Romana, which, which is the, the, the Roman peace. So Romans thought that the way that we're going to have, they, they prided themselves on, hey, we bring peace. But the way that the Romans brought peace is by crushing anyone that would stand up against them or beheading people that would br- break the law or crucifying them. And so they prided themselves on peace. But Peter's saying, hey, guess what? Peace is not going to come through Rome. It's not going to come through Caesar. But this peace from Jesus won't come through Rome ruling the world through military might, political power, and crushing oppression. Peace will and only comes through Jesus Christ. Rome's hope of peace is futile. But true, ultimate, eternal, lasting, spiritual peace is offered, not through Caesar, but through Jesus Christ. Not only does Peter use uh, the words kingdom and the words uh, peace, uh, which are common Roman words and culture, but uh, Ted Olson writes, words like Savior, Lord, Gospel, and Peace were used in imperial propaganda to talk about Caesar. So these were common words used in the Roman nation, not to talk about Jesus or, or, or the God of the Old Testament, but to speak about political figures, to speak about uh, Rome and its leaders. So we already looked at peace, how Jesus brings a better peace, and Peter says, you think Caesar's going to bring peace? He's not. Jesus is going to bring peace, a real peace. So let's, let's look at a couple more of these words. The word gospel was actually uh, a word that was used by Romans. It, mean, it still means good news, but uh, a Roman gospel, a gospel from Caesar, was the good news that a new heir had been born. So it was a gospel that, uh, that Caesar has had a kid, and we now have a new heir that will rule as a godlike leader like Caesar has. Or... It was the good news that a distant battle had been won. So someone, a herald, would come and say, here's the gospel. Rome has now defeated another nation. Or we've won another battle. But Christians co-opted this word to speak of a much, much greater news. An infinitely better gospel of a cosmic war being won by the heir to the heavenly throne, Jesus Christ. He is the true Savior of the world, and his gospel is greater than Caesar's. Peter continues then by preaching that Jesus is Lord, which is a phrase, like I said, many of us are familiar with. But to the original hearers, Peter said it wrong. Peter, that's, that's the wrong phrase. We don't say Jesus is Lord. The phrase is Caesar is Lord. So maybe like uh, Brits say, long live the queen, like all the time. It's just a phrase they say, Ancient Romans would say, Caesar is Lord. But Peter doesn't say that. He takes that phrase and says, ah, Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. The word Lord for ancient Romans was the word used for a supreme ruler. It was Caesar's title when the Romans worshipped him as a god. So Peter is reminding these deeply patriotic and proud Romans that not only will peace not come through Rome and her rule and her ideology, but that their godlike leader, Caesar, let's do quote, 
air quotes around God there, but that their godlike leader, Caesar, isn't really a lord. He's not really the lord, but rather a blue-collar, oppressed Jewish carpenter-turned-rabbi is lord. He's the king. Jesus is the ultimate ruler. Jesus is the savior of the world, not Caesar. Jesus is the one true God. Jesus is the all-powerful. He's the one worthy of worship, not Caesar. So now the Romans trusted deeply in patriotism, in nationalism. They loved being Roman citizens and all the benefits of that, and they put their pride and their identity and their hope in their nationality. And in this kingdom that their godlike Caesar had created, the Roman Empire. So while Romans trusted in their nationality, the other people hearing this message are Jewish people who trusted in their ethnicity. They were the chosen family. They were the people that God had favor on, right? They were the descendants and in the line of Abraham and King David, people God had literally made promises to, covenants with Yahweh, the God Almighty, the, the, the Lord of the Old Testament. He was their God. He even called himself the God of Israel sometimes. But in Peter's sermon, he's twisting this gospel diamond and he's saying, even you, Jewish people, who are putting all their trust in, hey, we're Abraham's descendants. We're good. I don't need Jesus. I'm a Jewish person. I'm a Hebrew. I'm in the line of David. Peter's twisting that gospel message and he knows who he's preaching to he's preaching to romans and he says stop trusting in your nationality stop trusting in roman caesar and he's looking at these jewish people and saying just because you're ethnically jewish does not mean that you're saved you need a savior too and you're not the only family that's in so unlike that sign that hung above jesus's head on the cross that said jesus king of the jews jesus is not just the king of the jews Peter is saying he is actually the king of all. He's the king of the entire world, Jews and Gentiles. He is the Lord of all, not just Jewish people. He is Lord. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the king of the Jews and others as well, the fulfillment of Israel. His kingdom continues to expand and is converting not just geographical areas, but non-Jewish people. Ethiopians, Samaritans, and now Gentile Romans. Jesus is king. Peter continues by making it clear how Jesus was made king of all. Right? The same Jesus that these Romans are thinking, I heard about him, but he was executed, he was tortured, Kind of a weak king gets executed and tortured and doesn't have an earthly kingdom. But Peter continues by, by telling them how Jesus is made king. Verse 38, God anointed. So God, who has authority over the universe, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. God Almighty, God the Father, anointed Jesus, which is kingly imagery, right? Think of uh, King David being anointed before he becomes king, the greatest king of Israel's history until, until Jesus. But Jesus wasn't anointed with oil by a prophet, but he was anointed by God himself to become king. And he wasn't just anointed with oil, but he was anointed with the power of God. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit. Peter continues his focus on the two ruling powers that tried to kill Jesus the Jews and the Roman rulers, how they tried to stop this threat to their power, to their rule. The Roman and the Jewish rulers tried to keep King Jesus from rising to power and reigning as Lord by executing him and hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead, never to taste defeat or death again, vindicating that he is the risen king and has the right to rule. And as King Jesus, he's able to be judge, the appointed judge of everyone, both the living and the dead. And as perfectly righteous, perfectly human, and perfectly impartial, Jesus will be the judge of the world. 
Now listen to this great news. All will stand before him, both Jews and Gentiles, both religious and pagan, and will be judged by the all-good, all-knowing judge. No longer will there be bribes. No longer will there be impartial judges or juries. No longer will there be corrupt soldiers and evil authorities and greedy governments. No longer will injustice reign over and rule this world and be the norm. But full and final and good and true justice will rule through the perfect judge of those who are alive and dead. King Jesus himself. And finally, Peter connects something else that's going on in the Roman world, this idea of a herald, right? They didn't have twi- Twitter. They didn't have, you know, even smoke signals. So like, or actually maybe they did have smoke signals. But the way that you communicate to your whole empire that, hey, an heir is born. A, a new Caesar, a new godlike person is going to rule in the future. Let's celebrate. Or, hey, Rome won another victory. The way that you spread that good news is via a herald, the person that runs across the Roman Empire and tells people of this good news. And guess what Peter says? Peter connects the royal herald that Caesar had, who spoke of Caesar's gospel and Caesar's kingdom, he connected that with Jesus and his kingdom. God chooses the apostles and the church to be his witnesses, to be his preachers, to be those who testify, those who herald. Christians are this guy here, running across the world, wherever God has placed us, telling them that a decisive battle has been won, that our king, the risen Jesus Christ, is on his throne. And we get to do that. We are the heralds, the church and us individually as Christians. Let's end here with three kind of big takeaways. How does Acts 10 apply specifically to our lives? What's God calling us to through Acts 10? The first is, thank God for his grace and that salvation has come fully to the Gentiles through Jesus. And I know we're all tempted to just glaze over that first one. You guys say this every week. But this is true. Most of us in this room are Gentiles. Praise God that it did not stop in the old covenant, that there is a new covenant. Praise God for the gospel that welcomes us in fully, fully in the faith, fully in the church, fully in God's presence and relationship with him via the gospel, not through the Old Testament law. Praise God, say Gentiles like us. So don't be entitled. Don't be ungrateful. It's very easy for us to be tempted to be really entitled or really ungrateful, right? We're the good guys. Of course God would save us. He's seen us, right? He knows that he should save us. He knows that, that uh, this Gentile is, is really super and he wants us on his team. Fight against that, right? That's, that's our hearts, especially as Americans, to be, un, to be entitled and to be ungrateful, thinking that we deserve all this. But let's together praise God that his salvation has come and that it's come to Gentiles and not just Jewish people. Secondly, we need to remind ourselves that our identity is as citizens of the kingdom of God more than anything else. Our identity comes through who we are in Christ, more than our nationality, more than our ethnicity. Just like both the Roman and the Jew, Cornelius and Peter had to give up their hope in their nation and their ethnicities, we too have been given an even greater identity, a citizen in the kingdom of God, a saved one under King Jesus. More important, these are all important, but even more important than our ethnicity, our nationality, our social class, our education level, our biological family, our theological tribe, our relationship status, our life stage, our sexual orientation, how far we've climbed in our work or in our hobby, or anything else that we're tempted to believe, that makes me me. That's who I am. That's the core of my identity. More important than all those things is our identity in Christ. Who Jesus says we are. Putting our full trust in him as our Savior, our Lord, and our King. All these other identities, they can and they will fail you eventually. But there's one identity that will never fail you and can never be taken from you. Our identities in Christ are secure. You can have this 
in Christ, this new identity. So there are so many implications of this, this second point here, and uh, I encourage you to work through these with your community groups and, and, and friends and family this week. There's so many implications, and we don't have time to unpack all these. But our ultimate identities come in Christ. And third and finally, in Christ we are made clean. We are no longer impure, no longer guilty, no longer common. We are made clean in Christ. Maybe today you come here and you don't feel clean because you've been destroyed by sin or that you keep giving in to the same sins that, that, that haunt you over and over again. Maybe you've been sinned against. Maybe your past has left you feeling full of shame and dirty and guilty and impure. But know today, if you are a Christian, you are clean. You are declared innocent. You are made righteous. You are washed. And just like in our passage today, what God said is clean is clean. If he says it, it's true. Believe that if you're a Christian here today. You have been made clean in Christ. You have been made righteous. You have been called innocent. So tell yourself that over and over and over again because you're not going to believe it. Tell the loved ones in your life, in your community group, in your children, in your friends who are struggling with this shame and this, and this uh, feelings of, of, of just being tainted by the sin that was in our past or that continually uh, just keeps coming up in our lives again and again. Through trust in Jesus' death and resurrection in your place, you can be made clean. It's who you are. You have a new identity. You are clean. You are, you are forgiven. You are made pure. You are loved. You are wanted. You are accepted in Christ. And if you're here and you're not a Christian here today, God offers that to you today. A new identity. A new way to become clean and innocent and loved and wanted and, and uh, bend the knee to the great and perfect King Jesus. And just like Cornelius didn't have to first convert to Judaism before he received the Spirit and was saved, we do not have to make ourselves clean. We don't have to be better. We don't have to convert. We don't have to go through some laws or some hand-washing in order to come to the cross and to repent and to believe. Just like in Cornelius' story. Remember, when did the Holy Spirit fall on them? While Peter is, is finishing up preaching the gospel, they had no time to clean themselves up. They had no time to do any good deeds. They had no time to, to make these really great prayers or say these really great things, right? They're just hearing the gospel and they're believing it and the Holy Spirit falls on them and they're converted. So no, that's all it takes, putting our full trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins. We can be made clean even, even us, who are impure, unclean, guilty Gentiles who were far off from God in Christ, that can all change. Let's pray. God, thank you for this great, great news that comes through the gospel, that you love it, loved us enough to die in our place so that we can be reunited to you. We thank you that you are a good king and that we can joyfully bend the knee and submit to your authority and leadership. And God, we thank you for all the good news and the implications of this uh, gospel diamond that we are made innocent, that we are welcomed, that we are wanted, that we are saved into a spiritual family, and so much more. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.